This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. This episode is brought to you by bullpencareers.com. Bullpen Careers is the best place to find young talent and the easiest place to find a job. Founded by former podcast guest Edwin Dorsey, the job board connects tomorrow's analysts with today's best companies. Some of the featured companies include Citadel, Citron Research, Point72, and Bridgewater, to name a few. If you or someone you know wants a job in finance, head on over to bullpencareers.com today. That's bullpencareers.com. Where I am, but where my guest is, it's 9, 12 a.m. And you are, it's what, Friday morning for you? And my guest today is Fritz. He is the author of Asian Century Stocks. It's a substack devoted to, well, you guessed it, Asian stocks and all things, um, you know, Asian and foreign, foreign equity related. And this we 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 met through a mutual connection actually through the Macrops Collective. Um, Keen was uh, friends with friends with Fritz, and they made the kind introduction. And I didn't realize that I was following you, Fritz, on Twitter before I even made the warm introduction. I was like, oh yeah, he's he's he's, he's someone I follow. I didn't I didn't I didn't put two and two together. But I'm stoked to have you on the podcast. And just to dive in, I want to get an idea of how you went from, you know, Swedish person to now Swedish person living in Singapore and that whole transition and then how you found your obsession for Asian stocks. Sure. Well, thank you so much for for letting me be on the podcast. Uh, it's a long story. I, I've been in Asia now for, for 12 years, um, in Singapore for uh, almost eight years, uh, but I, I'm Swedish. I see myself as Swedish at least. Uh, I, I was born in Switzerland, outside of Geneva, and um, both of my parents lived there for, for a decade plus. And, um, uh, and then I moved back to Sweden. I, I always wanted to, to leave the country and, and see the world. Um, so after university, I went to the UK and worked for an investment bank. For a few years um so that's how i ended up overseas let's say and this my first job was was really in um late 2006 or early 2007. um i was working for an australian investment bank called macquarie group and um it was it was a good time to um to be in the business um at that time the bank was called was known as the millionaires factory they had uh, huge infrastructure funds in Europe and elsewhere uh, that were raising capital uh, at a very rapid pace from pension funds and others. Um, so I I jumped into that role, uh, being sort of an investment banking analyst, and um, that was great for for a while, for about one year. And the subsequent year, two thousand eight, was it was really a disaster for the group. Uh, and um, basically, the, the transport team where I was working most of the time. Uh, went from over 100 people to to less than, I think, uh, 10, just over 10 or so, wow. in in a little over over a year. 
and I was just biding my time trying to figure out what to do. And late 2008, I, I started to think about what to do next. And um, for some reason, I, I signed up for this Chinese course uh, in, in London, and uh, I absolutely loved it. Huh. So um, come, come March 2009, uh, I was basically let go. And he told me, uh, you know, that was literally the, the bottom of, of the market, uh, of the stock market, at least the US stock market. Um, and, and at that point, I just made a decision. So I moved to Beijing to study mm -hmm. Chinese. Um, and the idea was that this is something I would love to do. I will re regret it if I don't. Uh, so I just took that leap. I bought a one-way ticket from London to, to Beijing. Wow. And uh, in the next year, I, I studied Chinese at, at Peking University. <laughs> so, so what what prompted you, or I guess I guess a better way of saying it, like, what about the Chinese language captivated you enough to say, you know, not only, hey, this is what I want to study, but hey, I want to buy a one-way ticket to Beijing and then just <laughs> pursue this. Like, there's got to be something about that. That's true. That's true as well. I, I had a girlfriend at the time who was um, from, from Hong Kong, Shenzhen. There it is. There it is. That's that is <laughs> absolutely. That's usually the story, to be honest. Um, and and I mean, we were living together at the time in in London. She she spent most of her life in the UK, uh, but she inspired me to to do it. And um, I was also curious about this part of the world, um, thinking it was a little bit more dynamic. I, it's exciting to you know going to Hong Kong and and um, and uh, well or China for that matter. It's, it's just an interesting experience. It's so different from where I grew up in, mm. in Scandinavia. Um, there's a lot of, you know, yeah, I mean, a lot of things happening. Also, in, in 2006, I spent half a year in India, in, in Bangalore. Mm. And uh, I spent a lot of that half year traveling around India. Uh, fantastic experience. And that also gave me some, uh, like, let's say, uh, you know, yearning for adventure, I guess. Uh, thinking that the European lifestyle is perhaps a little bit boring, wanting to see, to see the world. So that was the idea. And um, uh, yeah, and I'm very happy I did so because the, the Chinese language is, is, is um, I, mean, I love languages. That's one thing. Another thing is the, it's like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And um, learning to step into that world was just amazing. Uh, after a year, I, I was um, looking at Chinese uh, TV programs, uh, reading a lot of stuff on, on the Chinese internet. It's just, uh, yeah, it really got me closer to understanding how people in China thought. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy I did that step. And then in 2010, I got a job for an emerging market fund, uh, which was later acquired by another larger European fund manager. And... Um, that was a position based in Shanghai. So I spent a number of years, I was in China for four years, roughly. And I spent a number of years based in Shanghai as an analyst, just traveling around the region, meeting companies, um, and reporting back basically to the portfolio manager in, in Europe. Um, so that's kind of a formative experience. And that was also the, the first buy side experience uh, as an analyst. Um, so that was roughly 11 years ago. Okay. So when you went from Scandinavia to China, what was one of the largest uh, realizations about just how different 
that world is in China versus where 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 you're from in Scandinavia? Like, what are what are some of the cultural themes that just kind of hit you and you're like, wow, I didn't know that it was like this. Even though you've studied, you know, the language, you probably were learning about the culture, but you just didn't know until you stepped foot on the ground. I think there was a sense of freedom there. I, I do feel that certain cultures, including uh, Sweden and perhaps also Japan, uh, there is the ceiling is pretty low in terms of what you're able to to say and do. Hmm. You you have to act in a way that's kind of politically correct or or acceptable socially. Whereas in China, people are more relaxed generally. So I, I think that's a major difference. Um, at least at that time, they they weren't as sensitive to 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 what you said. Uh, you know, if you did a mistake, that's fine. Uh, you know, don't don't worry about it. Just not very. They don't feel perhaps um, you know, if they try to speak English and they say something wrong, I, I don't think it matters as much for a mainland Chinese as it does perhaps for a Japanese. Hmm. So that's uh, that's something that's very peculiar to, to mainland China. Uh, so that's one thing. And, and then, of course, it's just a lot of things going on. You know, it's a lot of chaos. If you go to Chinese website, at least at that time, they were complex and they uh, that's a major difference. Uh, and, I, and I just walking on the streets, there's a lot of smells hitting you in the face, a lot of sounds. Um, that's that's the major difference. Sweden is a very quiet place. Uh, <laughs> like most other Scandinavian countries, they are. Um, uh, yeah, obviously, that's just a reflection of the fact that there are 1.4 billion people in China. Right. It's it's a uh, it's hard to understand the scale of the country hmm. until you get there. Yeah. Uh, perhaps take a train through the countryside. You will realize, oh my God, there are <laughs> many people living in this country. Yeah. Uh, so it's so kind of funny. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of funny that you that you brought up just you know how I guess I guess one way one way to put it is just how how colorful the Chinese culture is on the ground and you know it's 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 bright it's 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 loud it kind of it kind of comes at you and the way that i'm framing that is like when i look at hong kong investments i mean i i i try right mm -hmm. i kind of like looking at the hong kong ipo market um and to me it all looks gibberish right because i got to use google translator i got to use all this kind of stuff but what i've noticed about most of these websites in Hong Kong and China is that they're very colorful and there's so much content hmm. on the website. Like it's almost, you know, to me, it's, 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 it's information overload. And it's funny that you hmm. mentioned that that's kind of how, how it is there in a way. And then when you look at Scandinavian countries, it's, it's also kind of funny when you look at Scandinavian businesses, whether it's Sweden or Europe or something like that. Um, you know, you see on their websites too, a lot of these investor websites like clean, very minimalist. Mm -hmm. And it is just kind of funny how you can kind of draw parallels between the two. It, it reflects something. And uh, yeah, uh, and, and I think as well, Chinese people are extremely friendly, generally. Just, you know, not, if, if Swedish people are reserved, they are not as reserved in, in China. And uh, I've been invited living in people's homes after you know, meeting with me for a few hours. Wow. Uh, that's just, yeah, especially in the countryside, people are extremely friendly and, and mm -hmm. curious. And, you know. So living in China, those years was generally a very happy experience. People, yeah. 
So walk us through your time as a buy side analyst while you're in China. What did you what did you cover? What what industries did you, you know, have to cover? Or then what mm-hmm. what industries or companies did you fall in love with during your time there? Well, um, uh, in the beginning, uh, we were running two funds. Uh, I was based in Shanghai, but the the funds were were basically Hong Kong investing in Hong Kong stocks, as well as B shares. Uh, I don't know. If, I guess there are not many B shares around anymore. But uh, yeah, they were basically Hong Kong listed companies. Uh, and after a few years, we also started an Asia fund, being uh, one of the first foreign institutions to 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 invest in A shares. Um, well, that would be Shanghai and Shenzhen Eastern stocks. Um, so that time in in, in um, yeah d- during that time in Shanghai, I was traveling around quite a bit to different parts of China, especially the southern parts, Guangdong or, or um, the region around Shanghai, Zhejiang, Jiangsu or Fujian. Um, so I've seen hundreds and hundreds, if not more, than of of factories and and company headquarters um and i suppose what's it's it, it gave me some i guess pattern recognition mm-hmm. seeing what they present outwardly uh in their reports or uh, let's say media appearances and also what you see on the ground uh, it's not always the same and i think you know, just like any other person uh, i knew that there were frauds uh, in china but uh, <laughs> I, I probably didn't understand the scale of it wow and uh, the uh, as anyone I, I think if you come from from germany or or sweden or or any of these these countries that where, where trust is high i think you you tend to trust people um as a as a default but uh in in china you have to go the other way around you have to start distrusting and then mm-hmm. it's, it's up to the management to prove that what they're saying is actually true that's the right way to approach it i think um so so that's the general realization um so i covered all sorts of sectors um of course colored by the fact that at that time a uh, large part of the index was uh, uh was basically industrials financials export related companies um especially if you're looking small caps a lot of them were um exporters guangdong exporters um uh, so but but really I, I had a generalist mandate and i did whatever my pm wanted me to do so which was which was basically uh finding facts on the ground and uh, so what companies do do i did i fall in love with um i have to say i mean i'm trying to look back and, and see what i thought at that time um Alibaba wasn't listed at that time, but although it was clear, you know, 2011, 2012, that they were absolutely dominating uh, their market. Also, consumer product stocks such as uh, Master Kong, Kangshu, or Tingyi. The uh, I think the name, the stock name is uh, Tingyi Holdings or something like that. Hmm. Uh, as well as Uniprecedent, which is a Taiwanese company. Um, those were, you know, a few co- consumer product stocks companies that are completely dominating. Uh, Master Kong, they do noodles, basically, instant noodles. Okay. Um, what else? 
I mean, yeah. Um, trying Are to think brands here. a big deal in China? And I know, I know that's kind of off topic, but you mentioned, you know, a noodle maker, but I wonder how yes. much brands play a role in Chinese culture. They, they, they do play a role, although Chinese consumers are very fickle. They can change their minds very quickly. And also the government plays a role as well because they guide opinion, uh, as you know, uh, in, increasingly over the past decade. Uh, and they have many levers at their disposal. They can, um, they can uh, uh, order state media to report on a company in a certain way. Uh, and they have tens of thousands, if not more, of, of commenters online, which, which write, so, you know, write whatever they, the regime thinks is, is wow. good to, to, yeah. to portray about the country. So that was another thing. Uh, so these scandals started, started occurring about 2012 onwards. Okay. Uh, so from 2009 until, as, as post all the way into today, the country has shifted and it's been become more and more influenced by the state and the party. And uh, 2012, I think that was the first time that I really saw a huge amount of, of, of scandals erupting in, in China. For example, KFC was accused of uh, using bad ingredients, causing people to fall sick. Uh, Foxconn was accused of, of um, making people commit suicide. Hmm. Um, Japanese car manufacturers were accused of... Uh, Frankly, I don't even know what they were accused of. But anyway, people were, were on the streets riding yeah. against Japanese car manufacturers. Uh, and, and, and since then, um, this fate has, 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 uh, has befell other companies, such as Korean companies in 2017. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's something I realized, you know, being in China, that you are at the whim of the government. And to take Foxconn, for example, they, uh, I spoke to some factory manager in, in, uh, in, in Shenzhen, and he was talking about the case. He said, according to him, at least, the uh, Foxconn received a, a call from the government, um, local government, saying that you shall increase salaries of your, of your employees. And they resisted. They said, this is, this is up to, this is, uh, this is an internal company matter. Um, but anyway, but it was after this call from the local government, apparently, that's what this guy claimed at least, yeah. uh, that uh, that this scandal erupted. And they said that it was uh, nine people committing suicide, I think. Uh, like that's how they call it in the newspapers. The scandal about suicides at Foxconn. Uh, but they, they were employing millions of people. So mm. nine people or, or um, you know, double digit number of suicides is not a big thing for a company with millions of of employees, but somehow uh, that didn't didn't matter. Anyway, anyway, so they raised salaries by I recall 40-50% and that was the end of the story, basically. Wow. <laughs> so it's it's kind of a, a blackmailing technique, you could say. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and and to this day, you know, this this reflects on how I see what's going on in China. Uh, just last few weeks, Tesla is, is in the news again, and it makes you wonder a bit if there if there's some kind of negotiation going on in the background between Tesla, and China, and the government. Yeah, what 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 kind of is it? Is it something where Tesla would start entering the Chinese market, and then they're you know basically 
Elon and the government are trying to negotiate some sort of, um, uh, what is it like positive propaganda about Tesla or what do you think is happening? I mean, obviously all this is pure speculation, but. Um, I don't know, but uh, I, mean, I, I can't, I can't speculate on what's going on with, with Tesla in particular, but uh, the goal of the government is, is to, um, is to gain foreign technology and intellectual property. So um, yeah, it could be anything from, uh, from, Putting more R and D, making more R and D within the country, mm-hmm. uh, or perhaps, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if you f- you follow what's going on in, in the past year, but uh, it, over since I guess 2015-16, major companies in China have had to have Communist Party committees that are basically uh, they have influence over the board board of directors, and s- since September last year. Uh, even private companies have to have communist party committees wow. which are basically in charge of of hr decisions they can choose who who should get employed and fired uh, so this basically the party has big influence over <laughs> over every any company in china and, and that's a major risk or opportunity let's say well so then it then it almost begs the question at what point is doing any fundamental analysis even worth it if at the end of the day it, it, it's 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 just a matter of what the ccp decides and i know that that's a super naive take right. obviously but I'm, I'm trying to distill it down maybe to a hyperbolic state that way you can break down why that might be wrong if that makes sense um well i mean so the the, the current leadership is more authoritarian um the um i i, I think the they are trying to to increase China's um, power in the world, and they have a specific strategy of achieving that. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, moving towards socialism is, is probably not great for private companies, but it might be good for for SOEs. So that's why I think you know, if you want to own Chinese shares, you should probably own state-owned enterprises because they are taking market share in many cases. You see that, for example, in the property market these major developers they are taking market share growing like 10 percent per year in a market that's actually pretty flattish right uh so so uh you i think you want to own soes and the next generation in china uh is going to be a lot more uh reform minded hmm. i believe so uh it depends on how long a view you take um but i do think the next generation is 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 vastly more, uh, you know, modern, let's say, in their thinking. But it's just you, a matter of, yeah. Well, do you think, because I, I do agree that at some, at some point these, these swings go back and forth. It's, it's, on, it's on a pendulum. So when you go one way, at some point in time in the future, you're probably going to swing back the other way. But I wonder if there's yeah. this kind of threshold where the authoritarian regime gets so mm. big that it doesn't really matter how much more reformed mm. the populace is if there's really no yeah. way to express that that reformation exactly i mean and i think that's why uh guys like matt pottinger and uh, hr mcmaster they, they say that this is the extremely dangerous period where the outcomes are very wide we we don't really know yet if 
if opposition within the Communist Party can be completely obliterated by the current leadership, uh, in which case that we will see more of what's of the, of the current trends, mm -hmm. uh, which is basically more, um, I guess, uh, yeah, Gordin mean like government taking share from the private sector. Um, so we'll see. Uh, the um, they are trying to to let's say build a surveillance infrastructure, a payment controlling payment infrastructure as well as communication, uh, which would make it more difficult for any uh, opposing figure within the party to to gain right. power. So, so yeah. we'll see. It's it's but it's it, fascinating. It's actually a good segue into your blog posts from January, the 10 things I learned from Ian Easton's book, The Chinese Invasion Threat. And right. this one is about, um, it's about how China, how, how a China invasion of Taiwan would likely play out. And I think this is really important, A, just from a semiconductor perspective, just because I think semiconductors right now are kind of viewed as like this new oil where whoever controls the semiconductor technology really controls the future, mm. Um, mm. especially in terms of, you know, what you can build with AR and VR and kind of getting it to the end units and then, um, you know, determining supply. And if you can kind of get a grip on supply, then you really have a stranglehold on the rest of the world. And Taiwan or Taiwan's obviously an important part of that. So I'm going to go through and just kind of name the title of your top 10 and, you know, we can, sure. we can maybe just do the top five. Cause if we do top mm -hmm. 10, this would be like a two hour podcast. But um, the first takeaway that you had is that China has had a plan to invade Taiwan for years, for, for many years. So maybe just kind of expand on, 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 on this plan that they've had and, 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 and why this isn't some sort of breaking news. Well, uh, the, the, the CCP, um, they, they've been trying, they've been wanting to take over Taiwan since the early 50s. And Mao had plans of doing so, but he was uh, basically um, busy with other things. Uh, he was busy with, with intervening in the war in Korea, uh, which I guess is early 1950s. And, and then the, the Communist Party also didn't have a big, um, big navy at that time. So I think it was pretty clear that there was no way of, of actually uh, making an amphibious assault on, on Taiwan. The, um, the nationalists at the time, they had a huge amount of uh, resources at their, at their disposal. Even though the population was small at the time, I don't know how small, I, I, I guess um, still millions of people in Taiwan, but uh, their, their military resources were completely dominating those of the Communist Party. Um, so basically, yeah, uh, that was the, the, the background. And at that point, at some point, they just um, gave up. And then in the 1970s, they, they, um, um, Taiwan was still on the radar. And, and I think it still is. Uh, but when Kissinger met Mao in the late 1970s, uh, or maybe... I forgot who said what, but I think Joe and Lai said that uh, Taiwan is the number one priority for the Communist Party in order to to make sure that the party is all powerful, that there's no uh, opposing party. Um, so the the new goal became to be became taking over Taiwan before 2049. Okay, uh, and and that's still the plan. Um, 
let me just uh, see exactly what I wrote in, in my blog post. Yeah, because I guess that goes right in kind of with your second um, takeaway from the book was that the reason why the PRC, the People's Republic of China, mm. hasn't invaded Taiwan yet has been a lack of resources. So they still, I guess, yeah. according to this book, they still don't have as much as they think they need to successfully invade Taiwan or Taiwan. I keep saying Taiwan and it makes me sound like a dweeb, but it's harder to say when you're <laughs> thinking of other things. <laughs> sure, sure. No, exactly. That's right. I, I do think that at the moment they're, they're, they're needing, uh or their total resources during uh, maritime is totally overwhelming Taiwan. So without the intervention of, of the United States, it's it's basically a done deal. Okay. Well, I wouldn't say it's a done deal, but it's it's pretty 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 damn close to a done deal. Uh, yeah. So certainly they were trying to. Um, they had plans of taking over Taiwan in back then. Um, and and by the way, uh, the the nationalists at that time they also controlled a number of small islands. Uh, I think they also controlled Hainan at some point. But, but also smaller islands such as Matsu and uh, Dongsha and Kinmun. Um, yeah. And I'm just looking right now, it says at, at the third kind of takeaway is how, mm. how big China's military spending is compared to Taiwan or, you know, compared, compared mm. to Taiwan. And it's, it's, it's nuts. So, you know, obviously this is, this is audio, but the, just to kind of get a breakdown. So China has what? Two million active personnel troops. I guess call them troops on the ground, compared to Taiwan. Compared to Taiwan's one hundred sixty-three thousand, and then China has. Or I guess no, that's more because is each one a hundred thousand people, according to this graph. Uh, I think so. I okay, think so. so, so so they have two million active personnel uh, in in the People's Liberation Army, uh, and uh, so they, they clearly overwhelm uh, the number of people in in. Uh, and they've got three point three thousand military aircraft, so fighter pilots compared to five hundred sixty eight for Taiwan, fifty nine submarines compared to four submarines. Mm -hmm. um, it's just it's just crazy. So again, like you said, without without any you know U.S. intervention, it's kind of a cakewalk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it probably will be a cakewalk in in some fashion. The thing is, uh, Taiwan is a is a pretty difficult island to um, to take over. Any amphibious uh, invasion is difficult to to carry out, according to to experts. But uh, especially especially in the Taiwan Strait, because the the winds are strong and the tide is also an issue. Mm -hmm. There are also only certain windows during the year. When an invasion can take place and that will be probably uh march april as well as uh maybe september uh october so uh amphibious invasions they are tricky but with, en with enough people uh it it may be possible wow um so then the fourth one early warning signals would include stockpiling of commodities chinese aircraft mm -hmm. in Ty uh in, in taiwanese airspace and suspicious troop movements have we seen any of this take place in the last year or so? Um, I have seen um, rumors of individuals in China saying that they are preparing to go over, but uh, there's nothing confirmed. 
Uh, stockpiling of commodities, yes, definitely. There's 2020 has been a huge amount of commodity stockpiling in China and across of different commodities. Um, frankly, anything, and that's why partly why uh, commodity prices are soaring. I was just about to ask that. Like, I wonder, I yeah. wonder how much that played. Like corn, soybean, all the yeah. grains. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, I, I think I've mentioned it in another post on, on the website, but certainly there has been a buildup of commodities uh, and, and they just announced that they will restrict exports of steel and take away import tariffs of steel products, uh, which also mm. seems to indicate that they want to, they want steel to come to China. Yeah, they want to start building something elsewhere. with that steel. It's 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 really worrying, and um, so stockpiling is something that we're definitely seeing. Uh, suspicious troop movements, so far not so much, but certainly entry into the Taiwanese airspace have intensified in April. So that's um, two out of three, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> two out of three, true. What is what is the sentiment like if you read local? call it Chinese, I guess it'd be state-owned media. What's what's the sentiment around this type of news? Are they covering it? And if they are, is it, you know, I assume it's very like, hey, you know what, this is a great thing that we're about to do, or this is a great thing we're thinking about doing. Um, uh, uh, Taiwan, I, I don't think that there's been any mention of, of uh, any kind of campaign. Uh, the... Um, Generally speaking, there are the PLA. They released these propaganda videos. There was one just a few days ago, uh, and they they make sure to to rally people uh, into feeling strongly about certain 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 issues. So, for example, there was a skirmish between India and China, uh, I guess, late last year, and um, and and I think many Chinese they feel very strongly about that. So media reported in such a way that they, they, they feel like China was being attacked. Uh, and that's, that's always the way they portray it, that, that, that mm. uh, the mainland China is the victim in all of these. Uh, they're, they're just as if they're trying to defend the territory. Uh, same thing with the nine dash line. South China Sea is, is China's since, since forever, basically. And uh, don't you dare try to, to question, you know, what what is what is uh, China's own territory, and, right. and Taiwan Taiwan by the way is also seen as China's own territory, so any mention of of U.S. Um, selling arms to Taiwan is seen as a major issue. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's basically that's how they portray it, at least. It's right. an internal security issue. The U.S. is funding. Uh, yeah. Gosh, it's amazing how different countries spin different news. You know, news pieces yeah. for their common country good. Um, right. That's that's yeah. that's that's so fascinating. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump now completely to sure. Singapore stocks and in particular mm. Delphi or is it Delphi um, mm. Limited? And this one, I found this stock because Alex, uh, co-founder of MacroOps, he sent it to me. I think like. One night I was, I think, I think it was like 1030 or something. And he just says like, yeah. Hey, you have to look at this chocolate maker. And I was like, I have no idea what this company is, but he gave me the rundown mm -hmm. and it turned out to be from your website, which again, just another mesh that, you know, I, I knew of you, but didn't really know of you. Um, so walk us through 
this interesting sure. little i mean it's i it's not that little but walk us through this interesting singapore chocolate producer and uh, kind of give us at first the elevator pitch and then maybe we can dive dive into the nuances of of kind of what makes this idea attractive sure i think it's a it's a really interesting situation and a high conviction bet i would say it's it's not often you see a company trading at this type of market cap it's it's below 400 million us dollars almost micro cap well i mean it's, it's almost yeah, i guess i guess you could say uh, it's micro cap micro cap almost but it has a 45 market share 45 percent market share in indonesia which is a major country yeah wow. know, 280 280 280 million people and they all grew up with these chocolate brands so it's it's an incredibly strong company in this home market of indonesia it's listed in singapore and that makes it a, a bit of an odd stock uh, I don't think it's it's covered by Indonesian brokers as much as their competitors, hmm. um, but so that's that's um, that's the key thing to understand that it's it's a company with a huge market share um, in a country where chocolate consumption is actually pretty low. It's only one fifteenth of that of the U.S. Wow, um, and it's about one fourth uh, that of Japan. So there's a big potential for the market uh, to, to grow over time. And that's just in volume terms. Uh, the uh, as well, another thing is that the population is, is young, the average age, the median age is 30 in Indonesia, the pyramid is really, it, it, it really is a pyramid, uh, like the, the population um, structure with many young people. Yeah. Um, so there is underlying growth in the uh, in the population as well. Um, and I think Delphi itself is interesting because it's it's, it's rare for uh, chocolate manufacturers to be independent from these multinational corporations such as uh, Hershey or, or uh, Nestle and so on. Right. So, so and, and Delphi have, they claim to have a distribution system with uh, access to 400,000 uh, points of sale. So that should be pretty, attractive, I think, to any, right. um, any multinational uh, food company. So why do so, you think, why hmm. do you think they haven't been bought yet? Um, they've been approached many times. Oh, okay. um, but for, for some reason, the management team thought that, well, first of all, they, they've said that uh, the, the multiple or the, the evaluation is too low, at least at the moment. Uh, and as well, it's run by three brothers, um, and they are now in their, I think, 70s around there. So uh, they may sell at some point, but I think they're still working full time. And, and uh, we'll see what happens next. Uh, there, there is, uh, in, the, in the next generation, there are apparently sons that are involved as well, but um, not in a, in, a, in a, let's say, management position. So we'll see. I think it's it's possible that it will be sold, and if it is sold, it will be sold at much much higher price, probably two or three times the current uh, share price. So, in this write-up, you say that Indonesians have grown accustomed to the typically less sweet and less milky type of chocolate that Delphi offers. Is that unique to just Indonesia, or is that more attuned to maybe what the rest of the world prefers in terms of chocolate? Because me. From the United States perspective, I'm really only thinking about what 
Americans like about chocolate, which is why, you know, I think Hershey does so well. I think Hershey actually reported earnings today and killed it. Mm. But, you know, you've got Hershey, which is very sweet and very, very milky. Um, and I guess this this chocolate's different, but it's but it's obviously hitting a note with Indonesians if it's been consumed by, yeah. you know, four generations over 60 years, you know, of people buying this stuff. Uh, I, I think the answer is yes. Uh, certainly... Uh, I think U.S. chocolate is, tends to be more sweet uh, than European, and uh, at least the, the chocolate that I've tried uh, out of Delphi's uh, product lineup, it seems to be has less uh, cocoa than at least, let's say, Lindt or any European chocolate product. Um, another thing, another difference is that the uh, the chocolate of Delphi is is um, it it doesn't have any cocoa butter. Instead, they use palm oil, mm. and that makes it cheaper. It's cheaper to produce, and and I think it also um, it doesn't melt as easily. I think, at least, I think that's the case. Uh, of course, that that some people say that that's an, that's a disadvantage because over time uh, consumers would like to upgrade to to cocoa butter, but uh, there's nothing stopping them from from switching as well. Uh, so they're really they're aiming for the mass market, whereas maybe, you know, Ferrero Rocher or uh, Lint and so on, they are targeting the, um, the more premium market. Got it. No, it's, it's, it's such an interesting, such an interesting business. And you list a few reasons why I guess the, the share price is depressed. And so, you know, first you've got the depreciation of the Indonesian rupiah. Is that how you say it? I think you say rupiah. Rupia, okay, that makes more sense. So you've got that depreciation, and then you also say that they reduce SKUs by 30 40% starting in 2015, and you also have several major shareholders that are trying to sell their stakes, which first question for me is, you know, why are they trying to sell their stakes? If they're major shareholders, maybe they might know something that I don't. Again, these are just questions that I ask myself, but these seem, as you, as you point out, temporary um, headwinds. I think so. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit surprised, frankly, by how much the the stock price has has dropped. But at least uh, the the company doesn't have you know any debt to speak of. It has a net net cash position, so that at least gives some comfort. They do have some contingent liabilities, but uh, nothing major. So uh, the the issue is is not the issue seems to be temporary. Let's let's just put it that way. So the rupiah it dropped from 2014 to 15 or so, uh, partly to do with the oil price, I believe, uh, but also flows out of emerging market at the time. Uh, the the company they, they report in U.S. dollars, and that makes it seem as if uh, growth has been weak. Um, but I, I think growth is is not all that different if you adjust for these facts you mentioned. Uh, Reducing the number of SKUs, yep. that's one thing, by, by 30-40%. They've been trying to adapt to the new environment where more products are sold to convenience stores. They don't want as many products. So they've they've reduced the number of products that, that they sell. And in the process, they lost about 8% of their revenues uh, just from facing out these, these, these products. Um, which, you know, I think they were less 
So in theory, that should increase the margins. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, let's see. I mean, th those are the major reasons. The, so the, the, the falling rupiah, the, the other thing is a reduction in the number of SKUs and also uh, Mitsubishi and Aberdeen selling their shares. Uh, the reason why they sold their shares, uh, I'm not completely sure. I'll have to speak to the uh, to the person in charge, but I do know that both of them have had uh, turnover in their leadership ranks. Okay. So that could be a reason why uh, they've been selling down the shares. Uh, Got it. Sweet. Again, the reason why I like, and the reason why I'm glad that I brought you on is because you're probably one of the few people that even are writing about ideas like this. Um, which is why, you know, having you on the show is super attractive because not everybody's going to find this company and I'm going to bounce around again to, again, these are, these are all, I'm trying to find your, your, your free posts because I know that you've got some deep dives that are, that are for pain members only. And you know, the last thing, yeah, the last thing I want to do is be like, all right, tell us the whole deep dive for all of us that only pain members can have. But I do want to go to, uh, China unicom which uh hong kong listed limited company so your kind of elevator pitch here is Mm -hmm. at 30 or at 0.33 times ev to sales china unicom is possibly the most inexpensive of any telecom operator globally it's the third largest telecom operator in china with exposure towards both wireless and fixed line services um that sounds super cheap and it sounds like a pretty good business I think it's a decent business. It's it's okay. Like the big question then is what multi, what margin do you are going to assume for this business going forward? And that's a little bit tricky to say, but at least historically they've had margins that are uh, a little bit higher than currently. Um, the um, there are two issues with this Chinese telecom sector. One is that uh, there was an executive order issued by Trump in November two thousand twenty. Uh, saying that U.S. investors should not own these stocks because they're linked to the uh, Chinese military, or rather, their right. parent company MMI, MIT is linked to the to the Chinese military, the PLA. Sorry, not, not Chinese military, the uh, the Communist Party military arm, PLA. Uh, anyway, so the um, that that was an issue, and from mid two thousand twenty, the stock price has fallen quite a bit. And I think part of that has been a U.S. investor selling their 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 stakes, and I've heard of some some investors such as BlackRock completely divesting from the from the sector, and I know that other you know other fund managers have told me that they just can't own it. It's just impossible. Mm-hmm. Like they don't want to deal with that discussion with compliance. So, uh, so that's the reason why it's cheap. That's one of the reasons. The other reason is that five uh, G, the five G. Uh, expansion plan that, that China has kind of pushed from the top down is is pretty uh, it's 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 pretty I mean pretty ambitious I would say it's not as crazy as some of what's happened in the U.S. where where operators are using millimeter wave spectrum uh, mm-hmm. to build out a five G network this spectrum is more like uh, three gigahertz or slightly slightly higher than that but um, it has been weighing on their depreciation. Uh, for for about a year and a bit, so they started building up the five G network in two thousand nineteen, and since then the margins have kind of compressed a little bit. Right. Also to do also to do with COVID, but uh, the five G network expansion is really what's caused the expectations to come off quite a bit. Uh, but 
I mean, this is this is this happens in every every chemical transition, and it happened in four G as well. That you invest first, and then after one year, uh, suddenly subscriptions start to accelerate, and yeah. that's what we're seeing right now. And actually, the first quarter uh, numbers were fantastic; they were really good. So we're starting to see a, a huge increase in number of five G subscriptions. So even though people don't love them, I don't think five G is revolutionary. At least people will switch to these slightly higher ARPU um, plans, and um, yeah, I, I think I mean let us let, just see. At least that's a positive catalyst. You're going from a penetration rate of twenty three percent to something close to one hundred percent in the next few years. Uh, I think you should see uh, you know revenue acceleration. Right. Uh, I, I I yeah. I mean I know the bears. I actually posted this on on Reddit, and someone said that. The government will just kill this company, uh, but I mean, this this kind of plays a role in the in the, in the broader theme of SOEs. That I believe that the party relies on these companies for dividends, so you're aligned, you're aligned with the government. Um, well, I, I don't I wonder, think it's that bad. Yeah. Well, I wonder if the reason they wouldn't kill the company like this is maybe to put on the front that there is active competition going on inside the industry mm. where like maybe they could but if they would then they're almost tipping their hat like okay this is clearly a monopoly when they're trying to keep mm. it as you said in a uh, a oligopoly between you know three yeah. other players i think i think the, the the government the chinese government is very is very comfortable with monopolies and they have this new anti-monopoly law uh but it's really targeting political enemies, political foes, such as Jack Ma. So uh, I I think it's all right, as long as the government is the monopolist. And, and, in, and in fact, what happened in the channel, they, they, they're building the 5G network together. So in fact, their competitive advantage has actually improved since 4G. In the past, channel mobile was, was the biggest dominating and the other two had difficulties of matching the quality of the network. But since they're now teamed up together, now they can compete on an almost equal basis with China Mobile. So, so yeah. Yeah, you actually read uh, my mind. I was actually just about to ask you about China Mobile because one, that's yeah. that's the one stock that's popped up on pretty much every value investor screener since 2017, 2018. Yeah. I think I wrote about it in my blog like three years ago outlining mm -hmm. the bull case for China Mobile. And it's kind of just stayed this, I mean, it's kind of stayed cheap. It's just stayed yeah. cheap. Exactly. This, this is one of those, at the moment, especially in the United States, I guess, uh, this this concept of compounders has become popular. And this is not a compounder. Like the, the EPS is, is not really moving uh, all that much. Uh, China Mobile is potentially super cheap. I mean, even mm -hmm. to EBIT is like, nothing i don't know right. two times three times yeah so if they paid out all the cash uh you know uh that's that could be that could be something um although uh, yeah I, I think they're all cheap to be honest the only question is which one is going to increase the most in price right so uh might as well just buy a I, 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 them. <laughs> just kind of call it a day probably <laughs> and in fact you know behind the paywall i wrote another article about about Chinese SOE stocks and mm -hmm. it's, a, it's actually not just um, a China Unicom uh, many of these stocks 
that are perceived to be linked to the Chinese military are cheap or have been cheap. Yeah. So uh, you can you can buy baskets, and I think you'll do very well. Many mm -hmm. of them trading at uh, you know the telecom stocks, six, seven, or more like eight times earnings. Um, but they're cheap. They, you know, it's and I think in the current climate, finding stocks trading at seven or eight times earnings without any debt, I think it's it's pretty attractive. Yeah, yeah, it is. So the last company that I'm gonna ask you about, I'm I'm, I'm kind of going all over the place for 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 a reason. So I went to chocolate, mm -hmm. then I went to telecom, and I'm gonna finish with so 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 we did uh, what was it Singapore? We did. China, and now we're going to do Japan with Sanrio Company uh, Limited. The ticker is yeah. 8136 in Japan. And it's yeah. a turnaround potential in one of Japan's best consumer franchises. So for those listening, you hear Sanrio Company, and you probably are thinking, I have no idea what that means. But if I told you the phrase, Hello Kitty, I guarantee you, you would know exactly what that is. And so that's exactly what this company is they are they are what the creators of the Hello Kitty brand, which is, as you say, kind of one of the strongest IP brands in history. Um, you know, I would say you've got it. So 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 you've got it ranked as the second biggest media franchise ahead of Mickey Mouse, Star Wars, Super Mario, and Harry Potter, which is just absolutely nuts when you think about the value of of, of all those IP brands. Um, so walk us through the Sanrio thesis and kind of why you think it's this turnaround place. So first, you know, obviously what went wrong and then how do they fix it? Yeah. Okay. So it's been suffering since 2014 and um, the, the problem seems to be at least partly uh, management related. The, the founder's son, uh, Kunihiko Tsuji, he passed away in 2014. And since then, uh, the, the grandson has been too young to uh, take a leadership position. And mm -hmm. I think the founder has been probably too old. Uh, the, the grandson, Tomokuni, he's, he's been groomed to take over the business. And he did so too, late 2019. Uh, so the, that's, that's the key thesis that you have a new management team um, taking over. And I think Japanese investors, they are a little bit skeptical about this guy. He's, he's in his low 30s. Uh, but um, we'll see. I mean, there are some encouraging signs. Just look at the data. Um, but OK, I mean, let's look at the, all the other factors as well. One thing is that uh, Disney has really outperformed since 2014. Yeah. It had a number of franchises which, which did really well. Frozen, for example. Um, and whereas Hello Kitty has really, they haven't been able to market the brand at least overseas, whereas in Japan it's been more stable. Um, so the turnaround plan is, has a few legs. One is that they have a new marketing department. And the, before each brand had their own marketing department. Now it's, it's kind of com company-wide. They've also launched a number of initiatives, such as a new app to collect customer data. And they've also tried, they're getting into the movie business or rather the licensing um, their characters for movies. Mm -hmm. So there's a new Hello Kitty movie coming out that could be uh, a new driver, yep. uh, you know, to gain, gain attention and gain more licensing deals. And then there are a number of co collaborations, which I think you, you're starting to see here, at least in Singapore, starting to see them in stores with Levi's, Uniqlo and so on. Uh, so they've been quite aggressive at, at securing new licensing deals. Um, 
that's basically it. Uh, and then on the theme park side, it's, they've been hit by COVID-19. Right. Uh, but the, that's something that's you know, really cyclical. And I, I'm fairly positive with the, the current steps that the Japanese government is taking in terms of vaccines. They're talking about third quarter, full vaccination of the population. So we should be seeing a, a recovery eventually in the theme park segment. And the, the balance sheet is fine. So they should, be, they should have the staying power to... Um, uh, you know, until we get out of COVID eventually. Hmm. That's pretty much it. What what kind of caught my attention is is that the um, all these types of alternative data, such as Google Trends searches for for Hello Kitty, yeah. have kind of rebounded sharply, uh, especially in Europe and the US. And I'm not exactly sure why, but there's there's something there, something happening. So basically, the bet is that. Uh, you, you buy now and you follow the story as, as we go along. And in the worst case scenario, not much happens, but at least the theme park segment will recover, you know, into a COVID recovery. So that's... Uh, that's fascinating. I mean, I, 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 I just hope that people get an idea of how wide ranging your, your idea generation process is, which makes me want to ask the question how do you find these ideas is it just a screener or is it you've got a database of companies that you're constantly kind of adding to and then over time as stuff happens you you know pull them back up out of your out of your watch list or you know what is what does your idea generation process look like uh all sorts of um all sorts of uh, places of course I've been covering, uh, you know, a- Asian stocks, but especially Hong Kong stocks, but also Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Taiwan, in, Taiwan, and Indonesia. So I know pretty much what stocks are listed, especially the larger companies. So I know the universe. Uh, now during COVID, it's been actually quite easy to find ideas because I am positive about recovery, and that makes it very easy to find COVID recovery place, um, such as you know, like like Cenoc, for example, the oil oil producer. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty simple story, and I, if you want to invest in the oil oil and gas industry in Asia, there are only a few companies to choose from. So you just mm-hmm. choose the best one, which I think is Cenoc. But so COVID nineteen is a major theme of all the ideas that I've I've pushed so far. Okay. Um, I'm a member of I'm a member of the Value Investors Club. So over time, of course, I've I've learned about uh, different companies. Uh, I guess primarily in the US, but also sometimes. There are Asian companies also featured on on that platform, um, and then you know over time I've met many of these companies that I've that are pushed here. So uh, major Cineplex, I've met the CEO 2015. Mm. Uh, Hire, I I know them very well. Uh, Hopar, so my office is basically next to their headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> so and. Right, and and the last idea again, Kisushi. That's just it's a big running. So yeah, I'm 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 taking ideas that are pretty damn simple. Like Delphi is a pretty damn simple idea. Yep. I do, if I go down in the supermarket just downstairs from here, I will find Delphi's chocolates. So I basically look at the look at the the package, and I googled Delphi. There you go. That's very uh, yeah. Peter Lynch. Or Phil Peter Fisher. Lynch. I forget. I forget which one. Which one it was. But I think Phil Fisher or or Peter Lynch was yeah. like you know buy buy what you know buy what you use. So um, the great thing about yeah. doing that though, like in in these in these markets, is that you can actually 
take action on some of these ideas where you can find a brand like Delphi that's got dominant market share and it's not expensive. It's actually very cheap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't think many people have, have spoken about Delphi. I think the focus right now is, is really on, on tech stocks. Yes. Here in Asia, I, 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 like, to, I like to look at the um, CLSA, it's a, it's a major broker here. They, they have this top 10 list of most popular stocks uh, right. out of their, in their client base. And typically like eight out of 10 are, are tech stocks. Yeah, I'm so, guessing it's like Alibaba, Tencent, yeah. JD.com. <laughs> yeah, 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 you got it. That's exactly what's, what's, what, where the focus is. So, uh, I mean, a lot of these other sectors, oil or, or transport infrastructure and so on, uh, telecom stocks, no one, no one is looking at them. So if you can find a catalyst, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So. I want to kind of end this conversation with some general misconceptions that investors might have when it comes to investing overseas, specifically in Hong Kong and China. Um, you know, obviously we mentioned a lot of the risks associated with investing in, in, in China earlier in the show, but the amount of good that I hear from investors like Lee Lu and investors like Charlie Munger, I mean, Char Munger is a perfect example of buying Alibaba and making a huge deal and everybody on Twitter kind of going crazy about that whole thing. But as much as I have this negative view about investing in China and as, as, and as skeptical as I am about it, there is this other side of me that's like, you need to listen to what these great investors are saying. Because obviously, mm -hmm. Lee Lu and Charlie Munger, like, I've, you know, they're smart. They're investing there for a reason. They're seeing things in there for a reason. Maybe I'm missing something. So for someone like myself, or for someone who's who's a little bit more skeptical, what are some misconceptions that might keep us from investing in China that maybe aren't true? misconceptions um, or well, just some worries that we have that we shouldn't have or maybe they're all true maybe we should be scared <laughs> <laughs> well um, I suppose one I mean, to be honest I, I'm a little bit concerned to of 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 the current trend but yeah. up until this point uh there is this this national natural growth process and i it's been it's been copied by china it's been copied from japan and korea and taiwan so the fact of the matter is they are just doing the same type of game that japan was doing you know so many years ago that manufacturing has been outsourced to these countries and slowly, uh, you know, competing factories are set up next to them and taking business from these multinationals. And suddenly their own brands are popping up. And, and perhaps that will, you know, perhaps uh, the, the, the way things are, are going in China, perhaps that will stop the development process, but it's a really long-term process. And it's not also not just China. So uh, that's the whole case about Asia. Uh, like, the reason why the world is moving towards Asia is because there's a well-educated population that's really hardworking. Yep. You know, people are intelligent. There's, there's, you know, they will, uh, you know, figure out how to how to, you know, how to do well in the businesses. So, 
this is the major trend and and it, it's it's not just china but uh it, we've seen the same process playing out in korea and taiwan and, and japan mm-hmm. so um uh you could be very bearish about china also 10 years ago just looking at the you know the amount of misallocation of resources right but underlying underneath that you have this whole private sector which is growing pretty nicely and it's a lot of these companies are run by first uh, like like the real founders it was started after 1988 so the the entrepreneurs they're young they, they are not second generation they are actual entrepreneurs who built up companies from nothing and uh, you know and I think we, we need to respect that. Some of them are extremely good at, at what they do. So, you know, regardless of what you think about Xi Jinping or, or, or politics, there are individuals who are just incredibly talented. There's just immense amount of talent within China. So I, I guess that's, that's something I would emphasize. And if you can find an entrepreneur and just piggyback on him or her, uh, you know, you, you should. Um, hmm. just, just be aware that... Uh, accounting and so on is, is a little bit more tricky. You, you need to take a, uh, yeah, you, I guess be long-term and uh, and don't pay too much attention to accounting numbers. There you go. That's music to a lot of people's ears. <laughs> you like accounting or do you <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, fair enough. Also, don't, don't overpay. Uh, and maybe, maybe avoid these most popular stocks. Uh, 2000. Another thing is, this is a misconception. Although it, it it's uh, it's more of a warning, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Carson Block made this uh, made this argument, and I agree with him that 2010, 2011, that era of frauds, they were really manufacturing companies, and they were simple to spot. You just stood outside the the factory gates and encountered the the trucks moving in and out. That's how you could. That's how you could have. Um, prove that a company was a fraud these days a lot of frauds they went they are online companies yeah. internet companies and it's much trickier to prove that a, that a, that a company is faking their user numbers or their uh you know gmv or whatever so just be very careful about uh about chinese stocks in general but especially uh tech companies software companies i remember when luck and coffee blew up and that whole, oh, yeah. that was, I, I, I remember that so well. I was, I was, I was actually house sitting for a family friend, but I remember being in the kitchen and seeing the chart because the chart was super bullish and people made a ton of money going up. And then I remember the, the when, when the report came out and people were like, oh, how can, how can this be fake? I mean, their numbers are crazy. But then someone literally just like went to the store, like you said, just went to the store and, and started counting the people. And they're like, there's no way. And then the stock just cratered. Like stories like that are always sure. why I'm hesitant to just dip my toes into China, which again is stupid because for every one fraud in China, there's also a fraud in the US. You just don't, you know, it's it, it might not be as prevalent, but that luck and coffee example was just chef's kiss just perfect <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky i mean I, I of course i would tell you to to stick with the companies that have actual real assets which are not easy to re- replicate so lilu invested in shanghai airport i think that was a good idea you could probably invest in in uh, in a chinese airport as well like you know that they're not going to zero at least or if you invest in baidu 
you also know that you can compare the business model. You know that the business model has been successful in other places. Uh, so, and you can probably compare the prices, the uh, the market caps of the companies, and, and figure out that it may be reasonable. The current price may be reasonable, you know, given the peer group. But that's all you can do. Yep. That's pretty yeah. Much right. I mean, it's uh, yeah. At some point, you just got to make the decision and just kind of hope that you're roughly right. <laughs> but I guess you know that's what investing is. It's just making a bet and then seeing if you're right or wrong. Yeah. Uh, Fritz, this has been an awesome time. It's almost ten thirty my time, so it's getting close to uh, when I need to go to bed. Obviously, you've got the rest of your day ahead ahead of you. Um, where can people go to find out more about you if they if 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 they want to follow you on Twitter? I highly recommend those listening to subscribe to his Substack. Obviously, I'm I'm biased because I love emerging market and kind of these esoteric ideas. But um, not only does Fritz give you a good outline of 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 each idea, but he includes a very detailed, um, nice nicely done from a UI perspective. Uh, PowerPoint presentation. So it's high value add. Um, so Fritz, where can they go to find you? Well, um, they can find me on, on Twitter. Fritz844 is my uh, is my handle. And also my, my Substack is, is called AsianCenturyStocks.com. So um, that's where you will find all the ideas. And if you go to the About page, you can look at my previous ideas. And um, uh, going forward, I'm gonna I'm gonna post the idea roughly every second week or so, uh, cool. along with other you know links and also other industry reports. So, so yeah, awesome. And then the last question I ask everybody, whether it's free forum or whether I've got an outline, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Who would it be? Yeah. <laughs> I need to look out the window for that one and ponder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it would have to be some uh, you know, genius businessman. Um, I think he would probably have to be the founder of IKEA, Ingvar Kantrad. That's awesome. <laughs> I don't think anybody said that. That's so cool. <laughs> He's uh, he really is a genius in so many ways, and he he. Um, Anyway, I mean, if you if you get a hold of a biography of him, I, I really recommend it. Uh, he he appears to be this uh, uh, simple person, but he's an absolute genius in what he's created, you know, in in a lifetime. Uh, so after reading his book, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm pretty interested in in hearing what his his grand strategy has been to build up this amazing company. Yeah, I mean, I think one the 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 only. I guess tidbit I've gotten from him was a story and I don't know if this is true. So you can, you can fact check for me, but at one point when he was building Ikea, the, all like the distributors or like partners that he was selling them through, they like stopped selling his product. Cause they were like, I think I, I think the story went that he was taking away like a lot of their business and people were buying Ikea yeah. and not, and not their products. So they basically said, we're not letting you make, any new products and sell them here or something. And it was like this crazy effort and, and how we yeah. had to overcome that. He, yeah, I, there was, it was a huge rivalry. And, and at some points, I think, I think in the sixties, he moved manufacturing to, to, uh, to, to Poland, uh, or yeah, sort of outsourcing manufacturing and also letting people, um, 
construct their own furniture, which is uh, which has worked, you know, even though many people criticize that business model. But he's also done other things in terms of the IKEA business model, which is quite unique. One thing is that they build these huge outlets, and they buy, first they buy the land out around the outlets, hmm. and then they sell them off gradually. So it, it's almost like IKEA is, is, a, is a real estate company in the way that they they uh, they build a mall in order to increase the value of the land, and then they sell it off to others. Interesting. It's a uh, that is that is that is genius you build and then the people come and then you sell it to the people that want to come <laughs> that's awesome to others yeah awesome well yeah. fritz thanks so much for coming on the show um i know we tried we've you know we, we we tried to make this happen had some had some fun scheduling issues but i'm really glad we got to make this work um i i know people are going to get value out of this they're going to get actionable ideas and hopefully you'll get more follows because i think you're very underfollowed on twitter and um you have unique perspectives on differentiated differentiated ideas, and I just thank you for the contribution you make uh, to Twitter and to my idea process. Well, thank you so much for the interview.